This is Gordon Vernick with Jazz Insights. Today I'm in the studio with a very dear friend of mine. His name is Bobby Shu. He is a wonderful trumpet player, great teacher, a mentor to me and many, many other great musicians all over the world. We'll pick up with his career in the Army. When you got out of high school, what, what did you do? Well, a week after I got out of high school, I drove to Bloomington, Indiana and attended the first jazz workshop, the Stan Kenton Clinics. And it was the first uh, workshops in jazz ever. Sure, yeah, those are early, like Yeah, and I was there, and Gary Burton was the piano player in in the band I was in. He was just learning to play the vibes then. Louis Gasco was always also in the trumpet section. Those were the three out of that band that went on to have major careers. But anyway, I went to to the camp. It was in about the second week of June. I was in Indiana, and I had driven my car there. I had a, a Chevy, a 55 Chevy, and I drove it there. And um, another kid was with me, a flute player. And uh, so we thought, well, geez, we're in Indiana. We're almost in New York. You can't be that much further. So we drove on to New York City and drove in through the Holland Tunnel into the city and got very overwhelmed by traffic in a quick flash and came back out and parked the car in New Jersey and went took the train back over. Spent the entire rest of the summer in New York City listening to Miles and Monk and all of the bands. Did you know anybody in New York? You just found a place I to nobody. stay? I knew nobody. We, didn't, we weren't there for, like, glamour. We wanted to hear the music and... Uh, every day at one thirty or so, uh, Henry Red Allen would play at the Metropole. And oh, we'd hear sure. all the afternoon stuff or Saul Yaget or somebody. And then I would, we hit every club and we, until 4 o'clock in the morning. We were, And we got to be like the maitre d's at these clubs, got to know, oh, it's those kids from New Mexico. Come on in, you know. Well, I just heard more stuff than I sat there with Miles' spit valve dripping on my table right underneath him, you know. I mean, how cool was that? So two months in New York. And then I came back and went to college one year, and I was an architecture major. And then um, went back the next year to the Canton Clinic and spent the rest of the summer in New York again, and then came back and did another year of college, and then I got drafted. I didn't really want to go out and shoot people with guns and stuff. I'm not a warlike type of a person, but the thing is, I, I ran into an old friend who was uh, in Albuquerque, and I said, gee, I haven't seen you in a year, so where you been? He said, well, I'm in the Army. I said, oh, no, you too, I got to go next week or something. He said, oh, no, I'm in this band. We're playing at the Officers Club tonight. He said, man, you should come up and audition because they think he's going to be a jazz trumpet chair. He's going to open up pretty soon. And I kept thinking, a military band? This is like Sousa Marches and stuff? Jazz trumpet chair and a Sousa March? What's this? had no concept, you know. So I got up there and I uh, listened to the band. It sounded like Woody Herman's band. Of course, Phil Wilson was playing lead trombone in the band. Bobby Harriet was in the band. There was a lot of guys. I went, holy cow, this band is good. So I listened for a couple of sets, and they all met me. And then on the last set, I went up and took my horn and sat in the section. The sight read some parts. I could sight read anything and put in front of me pretty easy. And I stood up and played a couple of solos, and, and the colonel, that ran the band, and he was the leader and the singer, and he went to the office and typed out my orders right there. And that was it. And I enlisted for three years rather than drafting for two years. But by enlisting, I gave him one extra year, but I got to choose my duty rather than being sent to Fort sure. Sill, Oklahoma, with artillery. So Where were you stationed? Uh, Colorado Springs, okay. NORAD, okay. North American Air Defense. That's it. And I was Paul. Denver. I was the replacement for Paul Fontaine, who was the ex Woody Herman jazz trumpet player. You know. Anyway, it was a wonderful experience. We spent most of our time 
not doing inspections and doing military. We were out in Hollywood recording at Capitol for Armed Forces broadcast. We did Carnegie Hall every year. We were at the World's Fairground. It was fantastic. It was a turning point in my life, you know, to be in a situation like that, uh, fulfilling uh, the obligation of the draft, but doing it, doing something I love. And plus, I was exposed to this fantastic bunch of players that had already been on Stan Kenton's van or Woody Herman's van. And so this was networking, and this was connections. Well, we were in New York playing the World's Fair, and uh, the colonel called me up. And um, well, we were doing a concert at the World's Fairgrounds, and when we finished, he said, What are you doing tonight? I said, I'm going to just go around town and listen to some jazz. And he said, Well, Sam Donahue called, and he's fronting the Tommy Dorsey band now. And he said, they're looking for a a trumpet player. And he asked me if we had anybody about to get out. And I was about two and a half months from getting out. He said, why don't you go down and audition for that, you know? And I said, well, me? Play in a band like that? I don't think I could ever play in a band like the Tommy Dorsey band or anything. I didn't think that I had anything to, to do with that. I thought I was way below that, you know? I went down there, and the first guy I run into is Charlie Shavers. He's wow. backstage, you know. I went, oh, my God, who is the Charlie <laughs> Shavers, you know? Goodness. So anyway, I did the same thing. They played their little show set with the Pied Pipers and Frank Sinatra Jr. and all of that. And, and then they did a dance set. I went out and sat in and uh, played a few, read a few charts, stood up and played a couple solos. Sam says, you got it. You got the job. I said, well, I'm still in the military. He says, well, tell Mark. That was Azalina, the band leader. So the next morning... When we were headed to the airport to fly home to Colorado Springs, Mark says, well, what happened last night? I said, well, they offered me the gig. I said, I told him I've still got two and a half months. He says, don't worry, I'll get you out. And two days later, I was out (laughs) and flew to Vegas and joined the band. He just routed me out two and a half months. He just signed, made a phone call, and boom, I was out of the military. I saluted him goodbye, threw my uniform in the backseat of a car and flew to Vegas, you know. And that was the end of that military service. That was the end of the military, and it was the beginning of like a dovetail right into that. And there I was in Vegas. I met my wife that night. She was a dancer, and I just happened to meet. She was backstage, and I played on that band for a while, and then uh, Phil Wilson had been in the NORAD band as well, and he went back with Woody, and they were looking for a jazz trumpet player, uh, not a jazz trumpet player, a trumpet player, and Phil says, get this kid Bobby's shoes. So they called me on the Dorsey band, and I left the Dorsey band, and and it's just, in those days, you know, I never thought I was going to be a professional musician. I just thought, well, this is going to be cool. I can tell my grandchildren someday that I had a brief run in and played with the Tommy Dorsey band and then I thought, well, I can tell him I played with Tommy Dorsey and, and Woody Herman and then it just kept leading one to the next and to the next and I look back where I'm sitting here talking to you right now and I never got back to architecture school. <laughs> <laughs> so how long were you with uh, Woody Herman? Uh, uh, the better part of all of 65. And then what happened in 66? Well, I went from Woody Herman to playing lead trumpet for Della Reese touring with her six-piece brass and a nine-piece band. And then from there, um, I went to Benny Goodman's band for a couple of months. What was that like? Terrorizing. I mean, I've, we've all heard the stories about Benny Goodman. Are they, they true or just everything well, is relative? Benny Goodman was one of the weirdest individuals I've ever met in my life. And even his daughter said they never could figure him out, you know. But after that, I started, there was one little period I played for only about four weeks with Cy Zentner band. And that was very cool. Cy was a beautiful man to work for, a very unique trombone player. And, and the band was happening. Gene Go was playing lead trumpet on it. You know, it was a beautiful band. Then I started playing lead trumpet for traveling as the lead trumpet player. The first one was Paul Anka. And then uh, 
Elvis Presley. And t- tell us, I mean, we're all curious about Elvis. Can everybody, you? How, why how long, does everybody ask I know, about we just, Elvis? We, we are. We just because he's the biggest star ever. I think, uh, possibly. You know? So, uh, what was that like? Did you? Did, did he know you? Did you have a personal relationship in there, or, or was he very standoffish? Just tell us just a little bit. Well, he he knew who I was, of course, and I was certainly introduced to him and everything. But I'm not somebody who wants to rub shoulders with the people I work for. They're my bosses, and my job is to play the part and leave them alone. A lot of the guys that work for people like that, they want to have their picture taken. They want to hang with them. And they want to say, oh, yeah, me and Elvis, me and Elvis, me and... No, no, no. It wasn't what I wanted to listen to and when I went home. But I wanted to go out on my own and listen to my own music. When it came time to do the job, I just did the job correctly. He was a very nice cat. It was never any crap with him at all. It's a negative thing, nothing. It was only, It was only pleasant. I mean, I don't think Elvis, well, I know he had never played with, had a big band back him before. And so at the first rehearsal, we're playing like, I don't know, Jailhouse Rock or something. All of a sudden, the band comes in and scared the pants off of Elvis. He almost jumped out of his skin, you know. But he was into his karate in those days, and he was he was really cool. It was 1968. He'd just come out of retirement, you know, and we did, we went in the recording studio and 4 o'clock in the morning, and we recorded... Uh, some of the best tracks we did were, were uh, Suspicious Minds, uh, In the Ghetto, Falling in Love, and Memories, those four tunes. We did them from 4 to 6 in the morning. We did them that fast and put the horn parts on there. I'm still getting royalties from that, I'm telling you, man. One thing that some, some people might not remember is that in the 60s, every variety show on television had a live band. I remember I used to love when uh, the Carol Burnett uh, show came on because I loved mm-hmm. that that theme song and they all had um, great studio players. So there was a lot, it must have been a lot of work, even you know if you're not on the road in, in studios, but but all, every television show had, even the variety, the, the talk shows, uh, Doc you know Doc Severinsen uh, um, on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, but they all had live live music. Well, in the old days, I think you can trace this way, way, way back to the radio days. It goes way back to the fact that they had radio bands, and this was before even TV was anything. And so they had like a a staff NBC orchestra or a band and so forth. And America established that, and it spread throughout the world. And then throughout Europe, you had all of these radio bands, the BBC big bands, and you had them all throughout Germany, and one in Hamburg, one in Berlin, one in Stuttgart, one in Frankfurt. They were all over the place, and they were great sources of employment for musicians. You know, um, there were highly competitive gigs, and uh, you had to really be really on top of your game in order to get those jobs. But economics being what it is, and they gradually cut them back and down to combos and stuff, and trimmed them away, and trimmed and trimmed and. And even like the, like Las Vegas, for instance, all of those hotel casinos had a, a big showroom and a big band there. When I was living in Vegas, back and forth between Vegas and New York in the 60s, uh, I don't know how many hotels there were in Vegas then, I would say. But this is there, 20 or the, or the Rat Pack and, and you know, Well, those 20 or 25 shows. hotels, Sahara, mm-hmm. the Flamingo, the Riviera, the Desert Inn, the, all those kinds of things. And in those days, every hotel had a band, and then they had lounges with combos and stuff playing in there. The Caesar's Palace, I remember, brought Stan Getz's group in. They played for two weeks, six nights a week in the lounge. Duke Ellington's band used to come in and play four weeks at the Flamingo Lounge, and then Harry James' band would do four weeks. 
I mean, it's ridiculous, you know? And then I used the contractor for the, tro- the Tropicana a Blue Room Lounge, and we had a policy there of a big band, a singer, and a comic. So the first band to open there was uh, Maynard Ferguson's band, and we had Jackie Gale as the comic, and of all people, Tommy Sands as the singer. Now, can you imagine a combination of Tommy Sands with Maynard Ferguson? All that was missing was Annette Funicello, you know? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> he was funny. from those Disney movies. But it was cool. I mean, it was actually cool. And then Cannibal Adderley Sextet would come in and do four weeks or two weeks. or There was so much music going on in those days. It was everywhere. And all of a sudden, the hotels, they, were, they used to be run by the mafia and stuff like that, and everything was very friendly and free booze and free food and... They treated the people beautifully and everything. I think the mafia knew what they were doing, you know. And there was everybody was spending jillions of dollars in these places. And then they started bringing in these Harvard economics graduates who were all they could see was profit and loss sheets. And they said, oh, you shouldn't give out any free food or free drinks. No, we can save. Think of the money we can save. Nickel here and nickel there, you know. And they started cutting. All the free drinks went. All the free food went. They started trimming the bands down. Then they finally trimmed the bands out, and they put tape in. It was dead. It became an economics game rather than a human thing. And if you want to get your hands in people's wallets, you better have them show them a good time, you know. But there's no sense in ripping people off and making it difficult for everybody at the same time. But, I mean, they were firing bands left and right. But I just got fed up with Vegas. I couldn't stand it anymore. The whole thing was just driving me nuts and I thought this can't be what life is all about and so I said I've got to get out of here and I got I just got ticked off one night and the band leader was bitching because I had the wrong tie on I mean I was playing with so many different every hotel had a one had a bow tie the other one a bolo tie a wide black another a thin one I'm saying I got nine, 19 ties in my back seat of my car, you know, and so I put the wrong tie on. I'm down in the pit; nobody can see me, but the band leader could see me. He says he's got the wrong tie on. What difference does that make? Did I miss any notes here? Did no. I playing poorly? It became the tie issue, you know. So I said I'm out of here. So I just get pissed off, and I, I went home between shows, and I stopped on the way home at a Safeway market, and I, they have all these boxes up there where they unpack goods and stuff. And I threw as many cardboard boxes into my car as I could, and I got home, and I started bringing them in the house. My wife says, what's that? I said, we're leaving. <laughs> we started packing. Three days later, we were we had a truck loaded, and my Porsche was up inside the truck, mm-hmm. and all the records and books and clothing stacked around it, and we headed for L.A. Viva Las Vegas! Viva Las Vegas! Las Vegas with your neon flashing and your one-armed bandits crashing all those homes down the drain. Fever, Las Vegas turning day into nighttime, turning night into daytime. If you see it once, you'll never be the same again. This has been Jazz Insights with Dr. Gordon Vernick. You can visit me on the web at gordonvernick.com and facebook.com slash jazzinsights. Jazz Insights is a production of WMLB AM 1690, the voice of the arts in Atlanta. Viva Las Vegas! Viva Las Vegas!